Welcome to Art Scoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. Okay, I have a collection. I have a lot of capital in that collection. That collection's not paying me a financial dividend. It's certainly paying me a psychological and visual dividend, but I can get the capital out of the collection with an art loan by putting a credit facility against it and redeploy that capital in a part of my financial life that's gonna pay me a dividend or a financial return. That's Evan Beard, the Global Art Services Executive with U.S. Trust, Bank of America Private Wealth Management. He leads the bank's outreach to private and institutional art collectors, investors, and artists nationwide, directing a team of specialists who provide offerings to families, auction houses, museums, endowments, and foundations. An authority on art-related investing and financing, Evan directs services to clients in the art world, including trust structuring and estate planning services art-secured lending, financing, and philanthropic services. Prior to joining U.S. Trust, Evan was the U.S. art and finance leader for Deloitte Consulting. Previously, Evan served as a U.S. Naval Intelligence Officer in Washington, D.C. and the Middle East, advising the Pentagon, NATO, and Joint Staff on bilateral intelligence sharing agreements with Middle East allies. Evan earned his undergraduate degree in economics from the U.S. Naval Academy. He holds a master's degree in classics from St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland, and a master's degree from the University of Oxford. Welcome to the podcast, Evan. Very good to be here. Thanks for making time. And at a time when the art world, like the rest of the world, has had to adapt to the pandemic in various new ways, your clients span the globe and many consider art to be primarily an investment. Can you give us a top line assessment of some trends in art as an investment class in this rocky period? Sure. And it really is going to depend on the segment of our client base. So we think of our clients really in three big segments, institutions uh, like art museums and nonprofits, commercial art galleries, and then collectors. So I would say the institution is in probably as rough a shape as we've seen them. This has really decimated their finances. We did a lot of payment protection loans to keep them going, to avoid furloughs. Some are dipping into their endowment, and many are having you know, strategic discussions on viability and their deaccessioning works, and it's a really challenging time. Their revenue's been hit very hard, as you know. The commercial gallery space is about the same. We took a pulse just a few weeks ago of many of the top 50 galleries, and this is just the top 50, not the other thousands mm -hmm. around the world. And many said they're going to be down 50 to 70% in revenue this year. Mm -hmm. You know, no art fairs, almost no foot traffic in Chelsea and elsewhere. And so, you know, the, the middle tier gallery is very likely hurting even more. The collector, it's a different story. In a weird way, this is a crisis that is not an 09 liquidity crisis. It's not a financial crisis. It's a crisis that's hit Main Street very hard. Yeah. But the stock market, buttressed by the Federal Reserve taking rates to zero and flooding the money supply and backing capital markets, liquidity is strong. So our collector base is actually maybe slightly less active, but they're sitting pretty. They're taking loans out against their collection. They're doing private treaty sales. And it's a very strange environment because there is a lot of pain in the ecosystem, but the collectors seem to be the healthiest right now. And within that category of collectors, I wanted to ask you more specifically your background 
in naval intelligence equipped you with unique insights into the outlook of Middle Eastern nations who have been in the forefront of the market of late. So what would you say about the art market in the Gulf? Has the exuberance of affluent collectors in that region cooled since the pandemic began? The Gulf is such an interesting collecting region. It's a region where there's a small number of very large collectors. It does not have a middle market. And it really doesn't even have a lower tier market. I mean, there is some activity in the Middle East from what we see. And we have clientele that buy Middle East art. But the big buyers still seem to be the monarchies, the houses, uh, the Emiratis, the Qataris, the Saudis are starting to dip their toe in the water quite famously with the Salvador money. But they have this big vision 2030 Um, It's a cultural arts strategy. It's a soft power global strategy. And I think they're going to be players. I would say the Middle East can be defined as a small group of very large buyers that can drive a segment of the art market or a specific artist market in a big way. But when we think of the regions of the world where our clients may want to sell something via private treaty or where there's clusters of real collecting activity, the Middle East is still not high on the list. Yeah, yeah. Define, if you would, private treaty for our listeners. Yeah, look, when you you think of uh, selling a work of art, you can go through a gallery, you could take it to auction. But private treaty is basically a private sale where you get an intermediary like a private bank, a gallery, or an auction house to find a specific buyer on the other end. And you would go that route if you want discretion and confidentiality and maybe a very aggressive price. Right. And speaking of confidentiality, the art lending business and the scale of it may be a surprise to our listeners. If I've got this right, basically you take a percentage interest in a valuable object or a collection while you leave that painting on the wall. And that way the collector needn't part with a work they treasure, but is effectively mortgaging it in part to the Bank of America. Do I have that right? You're right. It, it is, in a way, a mortgage. Uh, we would. It's an indelicate way of putting it. And, and a very uh, indelicate would... <laughs> host, so that's how that works out for us both, Evan. <laughs> you know, but our, our marketing department doesn't love calling it that, but at, at its core, you're spot on. I mean, what what is driving this? And we, there's about $20 billion worth of art loans in the U.S. alone against about $40 billion worth of art as collateral, and we have a big chunk of that. And the calculus is not Mr. or Mrs. Collector needs money. The calculus is that this generation's group of collector tends to come from markets-driven industries that knows how to use debt, leverage buyout, private equity, hedge fund, real estate. These are industries that require sophisticated use of both sides of the balance sheet. And that's where the wealth generation has been. So this generation of collector tends to apply that sophisticated use of debt to their collecting. And what they're doing is they're saying, okay, I have a collection. I have a lot of capital in that collection. That collection's not paying me a financial dividend. It's certainly paying me a psychological and visual dividend. But I can get the capital out of the collection with an art loan by putting a credit facility against it and redeploy that capital in a part of my financial life that's going to pay me a dividend or a financial return. And when interest rates are at zero right now, it doesn't cost very much for them to do that. So their art essentially becomes what they use to back guarantees at auction or to pay a a sports 
team's star player a bonus or to acquire a company or to make a real estate transaction. So it's it's added a lot of liquidity to the market. And in some ways, maybe it's driven up prices. So these objects in the homes, these baronial manses are actually humming along in a market that's invisible to the rest of us, basically. You're right. If you think of the art, if you go into many of the top 200 art collectors that Art News posts every year on that list, if you go into any of their homes, almost <laughs> it's very likely that the art hanging on the wall uh, where let's pretend there's stored capital in that art based on its fair market value, that collector would have put a credit facility against that collection as it sits on their wall and has redeployed that capital to go buy a sports franchise or to fund a business or to pay a bonus to their trader mm -hmm. in their hedge fund. And you help some of those very same collectors who are considering creating a private museum. I'm curious, what are some of the considerations to keep in mind if a collector is exploring that possibility? I would say first, it's a really high bar. I mean, I, I would discreetly say, I know this is a public podcast, but I actually think there have been there have been more launches of private museums in the last 15 years than the previous 150, if you count them globally. And there's been a lot in Asia, a lot in the United States. And the thing that makes us slightly nervous is, you know, the, the permanence. And a, I think a lot of folks underestimate what it takes, both financially as well as strategically, to build a museum that is a going concern past the collector's life. Everyone likes the idea of their collection staying in situ for future generations to enjoy. But a lot of people underestimate just the scope and scale and cost and making sure there's a real public benefit to be had by the museum going public. And what we find is a lot of folks underestimate that. And so I would say for every 10 collectors that ponder the private museum route, I would say maybe two actually do it. And we think maybe one to 0 0.5 should do it. And part of that is when the Senate Finance Committee did a little looking around saying, you know, to be in compliance with regulations of receiving the various protections that are afforded to you as a, quote, museum, you have to be open this many hours, you have to have this kind of access. Is that part of the advice you talk to your collectors about? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, it, related use. So it, it, you have to have a mission that actually does benefit the public. Uh, I think, you know, 10 years or so ago, a lot of collectors were you know, contemplating creative ideas like maybe I can gift my entire collection to a museum that I can put on my own property. And that museum, I will make a family operating foundation and I'll put my family on the board. And uh, while we'll gift it to a new entity and get the step up in basis and eliminate a lot of tax consequences for the next generation, uh, and we can still enjoy the art. You know, that model caught the attention of uh, you know, the U.S. Congress. And so they are taking a very close look at, is there a public benefit to be had? And are the tax treatments of the gifts proper and is there a related use? So are you donating it to an actual museum or are you donating it to a nonprofit that doesn't really have much use for this art, 
but you're getting a step up in basis and you can eliminate mm-hmm. your tax consequences. So yeah, there, there's a very structured way of going about this that meets the IRS's criteria. And it's not a simple criteria. Right. Do you explore in those conversations the premise of a private art museum with the next generation so that the kids don't throw up their hands at keeping their parents' dream alive? Yeah, and in almost every circumstance, the next generation is less animated about the art collection in the same way that, you know, think of anything that your parents have collected or owned over the years that want to pass down to you. And they're very excited because there's all this sentimental value and you're sitting there in your new glass box, probably in the city. And, you know, you're saying, do do we really want this brown furniture? Do we really want grandma's cook you? So in the same vein, usually when we start to sit down with the multi-generation, you know, generation two is almost always focused on different elements of life. Maybe it's social entrepreneurship or uh, a different part of philanthropy outside of the art world. So usually you have to uh, devise a strategy that is not focused on the next generation of the family, but is there a structure that you can put in place that makes this a going concern beyond the collector? And it has to be endowed and resourced. And, you know, it's a high bar. Yeah. And, you know, obviously a guy like me prefers that collectors bequeath or donate their collections to public art museums instead of building their own. Has the recent news, though, about museums more aggressively deaccessioning influenced your clients as they think about their estates and about the planning considerations of the future of their collections? It's an important question. So, you know, from the from the SAFE Act earlier this year, it actually, you know, for a short period of time became, in some circumstances, um, slightly more profitable tax-wise to donate to your art to nonprofits this year. The SAFE Act had a few elements in it. One was the pavement protection plan that allowed you know, certain uh, loans to go out to certain organizations if you Uh, promise to use the proceeds to keep people employed. And that's both private organizations like a private nonprofit, like a museum, as well as a public institution. And I would say almost every single museum across this country um, took a payment protection plan loan uh, to keep their ongoing operations. With that said, there were other minor inducements that tweaked, uh, you know, the tax benefits of making it more attractive to gift art uh, in this year, etc. But I think going forward, we're going to have an election here in a couple of weeks. All of this is going to change, and we're very likely to come under a new tax regime. So I think you know the focus really needs to be, and it always is with our donors. People talk a lot about saving taxes, but all of our donors, the calculus usually is, you know, what is the actual impact going to be when I gift this art to this institution? And you made the point that we're in an era now where more institutions are either having to deaccession works to create liquidity for their, you know, the operations of their museum or, you know, to diversify their collections and for other reasons. That's making people slightly nervous. I mean, we saw last night uh, the Baltimore Museum of Art had consigned $65 million worth of works to Sotheby's. Um, They pulled the works at the last minute. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, that museum took a lot of slings and arrows through this consignment process. 
But anytime a museum consigns works, you know, the calculus is complex because it creates PR issues. But what it really does, it causes future bequesters to say, you know, is this a place that's going to care for my objects long term? And when the zeitgeist shifts or when one artist goes out of favor, are they going to end up on the open market? But look, you know, deaccessioning rules have loosened, and I think every institution are weighing the, the costs and benefits of creating some liquidity by selling the objects in the museum. The deaccessioning rules haven't really changed. There's been a loosening of the use, not for operations, but for direct care of collections, and AMD has been very specific mm-hmm. about that. That's right. You are a leader at AMD, so uh, you, you're, you're in a better position than I but I, I would I would sort of counter that in one way. You're right that the sales proceeds need to go for the maintenance or the collection. But money is fungible, and you know the ongoing operations on one side of sort of the balance sheet creating that liquidity does allow. So, you know, I don't know. I, I'm of two minds. I actually think if there's going to be objects that are going to sit in the basement for generations and never see the light of day, I love the idea of reintroducing these objects to an open market and letting a new generation buy and care for them and bequest them. Um, what I, but what makes me fairly uncomfortable as well is, you know, if you have some objects, uh, that are loved by the community and are sold to create liquidity because maybe they don't quite align with the current zeitgeist. So look, it's a delicate, delicate issue. And I think every museum is pondering it in a way And a lot of them are very nervous about the potential PR ramifications. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll just plug my previous interview with Jim Duff on the topic of deaccessioning, where I go into the issue of art and storage and how it's a little more complicated than works that are languishing. I I don't think they're languishing. But Evan, I wanted to ask you another question around auctions, because you help your clients negotiate with auction houses in order to maximize their earnings. What are some of the factors that go into arriving at what's called a guaranteed minimum? Sure. So there's a tool that the auction houses have uh, to induce consignments. And, you know, it's it's called a guarantee. And sometimes the auction house keeps the guarantee on their books. Sometimes they put it off on a third party. Uh, That third party is usually a collector who would be comfortable owning owning the work by guaranteeing the price at a certain level. Uh, it's like selling a put option. Um, so three things could happen if you're the guarantor of a picture. It could hammer below the guarantee and you will pay whatever you guaranteed the work at. So if it's a million dollar picture and you guaranteed it for a million, but it hammers for 800,000, you got to pay a million. Uh, mm-hmm. You're going to get a financing fee from the auction house. So it'll be slightly under a million. If it hammers for a million right at the guarantee, you're going to get it for a little bit of a discount because you will get the financing fee. If it hammers for 2 million, you will get both the financing fee and the upside split, a spread above where you guaranteed it. And you won't get the picture, but you'll get a check in the mail. So many collectors now guarantee works at auction. And the calculus is that maybe every third guarantee they do, they will end up with the picture. Um, But over time, they will get Two out of every three, the overage, which is the you know the guarantee, sort of the the spread between the guarantee and what it hammers for, and they'll apply that overage to the one they actually bought, and in their mind, they're buying their artwork at a deep discount. 
Um, it's a dangerous game to play. Um, but I would say this, look, the auction houses are in an environment right now where there's people are very nervous to consign. There's lots of you know risks inherent in the market, a, another wave of COVID, you know, geopolitical election risks, you name it. And you know, folks want more control over that process. So we have a consignment services group where we negotiate on behalf of collectors, either guarantees, but also, you know, something called enhanced hammers, where you get a portion of the buyer's premium on the other side back to the consigner. Uh, sales strategy, you know, a lot of these works are sent around the world and there's marketing and PR packages assigned with them. Uh, all of that is negotiated by the consigner. And there's a lot of little hidden fees in there um, from loss and liability fees to performance fees to sometimes the auction house will charge you a bought-in premium if your work fails to sell at auction, logistics fees. So you as the consigner, if you're a collector listening, have an extraordinary amount of leverage and negotiating power over these houses because they want supply. They need supply. Um, and you know, negotiating at auction is no longer a straightforward thing. There's lots to consider. And one of the things to consider, Evan, is the private sales option for a, a seller at an auction house. Is that a world where more blue chip works are heading than at public auctions in, in certain categories? Yeah, look, I mean, the, the auction houses have built out their private treaty sale departments pretty dramatically over the last five or six years. I mean, cr you, you take a look at Sotheby's, they, I think they had like 5x last year, uh, you know, total private treaty sales and even just, you know, a few years prior. And, you know, there's a few things driving that. The first is uh, people want a little bit more control over the end-to-end -end transaction. A consignment is oftentimes up to a six-month or a year process. And sometimes, you know, if, if you're in the early stage of the consignment cycle, you know, you may, you know, hatch a guarantee negotiation where it's still, you have six months of macroeconomic risk before it actually sells at auction. So, you know, some folks prefer the, the private treaty route. You have more control. You're able to negotiate what your net-to-seller prices. Um, and it's more discreet. You know, by mm -hmm. its very nature, if it's done right, no one knows the transaction actually happened. One of the offerings that you have is very visible, which is the decade-old Bank of America Art Conservation Project, which provides peer-reviewed grants to museums to conserve historically or culturally significant works of art that are in danger of degeneration. And you've made grants to over 170 works being restored in 33 nations on six continents, designating them as national treasures. You did so also with the Wittgenstein vitrine at the Dallas Museum of Art, for which I will always be grateful. I'm curious, Evan, beyond the obvious impact of the grants to date, has the Art Conservation Project spawned imitators or had other influences or in general, how is it going? We're a big organization. We're one of the largest banks in the world. We're a global financial institution. And, you know, this is a, a program that, you know, predated my arrival here, and I'm so happy to be part of it. You know, a woman who leads our arts philanthropy group, Rena DeSisto, had the idea a decade ago to say, you know, rather than just sponsoring the show, and we do, we sponsor a lot of museum exhibitions, and we love doing that, but, but wouldn't it be a fun, interesting idea as a cultural engagement initiative to go to every part of the globe, find a museum where they have an object 
you know, something that the community uh, loves, that that the community you know thinks very highly of, that may sort of not be in its the state that it really should be. And you know, let's just take it on and let's go through the whole conservation process. Let's fund the scientific research. Let's bring in academics to learn from the object. Let's unveil the object with a dinner. Um, let's elevate the object in the eyes of the museum going public. So look, this is not pure sort of social good here. This is us saying, you know, this is a chance for us to meet people in the community and really engage the art going public, the art patrons and the boards of directors and directors of these museums around the world. And, you know, it's been a great success to a degree that every year we open up from November to February and you know, the application process is underway right now. Uh, you can go to Bank of America slash arts and apply if you are an institution that has a great object. And we accept 20 to 25 projects every year. And we've expanded it to projects because, you know, over the years, it started as a very small group that would apply to get grants to conserve pictures. And in the last few years, we've done the state dome at the Texas State House. We've done uh, Philip Johnson's glass house in New Canaan. Uh, we've done Starry Night at MoMA, Van Gogh's masterpiece. Uh, we've done The Blue Boy by Gainsborough out at the Huntington Museum. We've done great sculptures. So it's just become, and we've done it on all continents. We've done it in Japan and the Middle East and China and you know, Puerto Rico. So you know, this has just become a program that has allowed us to go all over the world and have a dialogue around cultural objects you know, that these various countries and what it's done for us, it's allowed us to engage in a very different way. You know, I've been in the room with you know, some of our uh, foreign art museum partners. I, I didn't speak the language. They didn't speak my language, but the object was there that was under conservation. And it sort of created its own language and dialogue that sort of you know went beyond language barriers or cultural barriers. So for us, it's been a really fun program, and I'm so glad you raised it here. It's hugely important to museums, Evan. There are declining sources of support for conservation, and it's a field I'm very involved in with the Foundation for the Advancement of Conservation. So grateful to you for that. I'm interested in another topic around the way art is developing. The art market is watching an increasing number of artists dedicating their time and their talent to creating not objects, but evanescent experiences or large-scale installations that are impractical for non-institutional collectors. I'm wondering how that trend might affect the art market in the long term. It's an interesting question because I, I come at it in two ways. The first is these installations and these very kind of by design, non-commercial works of art play an interesting role in the art market for collectors, some of whom want to demonstrate to top gallerists or the collector community that, you know what, it's not about the financial aspect of the collection. I'm not a flipper. I'm a real connoisseur. And that's why I'm going to buy this very non-commercial. And we've heard from collectors that after they've acquired an installation that they know is going to cost a lot of money to store and the upkeep and the conservation is going to be a pain, that sends a bit of a message out to the art world that this person is a serious player. They're in it for the right reasons. And let's include them in some conversations when we have something special. 
that may be sort of a cynical way of looking at things, but actually it does play an interesting role. More broadly, it's introduced to us a whole new ballgame in terms of storing and conserving and valuing objects um, just Mm -hmm. from a banker's perspective. To give you one example, Yves Klein, the French artist from the 1960s, used to have happenings. Mm -hmm. And these happenings were works of art, but they don't actually exist. As you said, they're pure evanescence. But there are in the market these certificates saying that you own the essence of this happening, and they do trade from time to time. And more broadly, they have a fair market value. So we have an art loan where there is a certificate that represents a happening by Eve Klein that has been valued at around $100,000. And the collector has been able to, as part of their broader collateral pool, unlock $50,000 from a work of art that doesn't actually exist. So that's a philosophical uh, quandary. Um, There are works of art in our collateral pool that don't actually exist. That is a lot of Tubman's for a piece of paper. Let's just put it that way. Evan, wrapping up, I'm curious if the pandemic doesn't depart from us for a while, do you have any art market predictions over the coming winter and spring? Oh man, it's so interesting. I think you know everyone is yearning to get back to you know as much as we love these you know, Zoom calls and WebEx meetings and digital art fairs and digital openings. You know, art is at its core a tactile social ecosystem, and you know we're in this thing for human interaction and relationships and seeing the crack allure on the canvas and you know going to openings and meeting new artists and. I'll tell you, if there's one industry that really is you know, not working properly, it is the art market. Um, there, it, it's forced a lot of very creative innovation. The innovation cycle has been a five-year innovation cycle packed into five months. And I think that will benefit long-term, the cost of doing business, the, the ease of doing business. But we really need to get back to a more normalized and, you know, it's going to be dependent on the medical reality and a vaccine. But, you know, I wish I could say we're going to have this great adaptability and the market's going to function in this digital posture. But like the performing arts, you know, we see it firsthand because we can see the balance sheet of our gallerists and, you know, we can see how the auction houses fight. Look, this is a stopgap measure we're in right now. And I think we're all hoping we can get beyond it so we can get back to business. Well, you've helped us today look behind the scenes in the art world. I'm really grateful to you for making time, Evan, and shedding some light on that. Max, I've told you this in the past. I think you're one of the most creative minds in this ecosystem. Uh, You've brought a ton of innovation to the museum space. You think very uh, interestingly about how the market functions and love collaborating with you and kind of bouncing ideas off you because look, this is an industry that's in constant flux and it's an industry that is open for new ideas. It's a creative industry and you know, the more minds like yours in it, the better. So great having a conversation with you. Thanks so much. We've been speaking today with Evan Beard, the Global Art Services Executive with U.S. Trust Bank of America Private Wealth Management. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping. If you like what you heard, leave a review and rating on Apple Podcasts so other listeners can find their way to us.